Hey, pals. If you're a regular listener of our show, you know that we work super hard to bring you interviews with people who are telling all kinds of underreported stories. Stories about processing grief and stories about living in harmony with technology and even stories about math. Math. Yes, we put math on the radio. The conversations we have here on NPR give you perspective and let you in on a world that perhaps isn't your own. And we're able to do that week in and week out because of listener support. Really, listener support means so much to us. I know a lot of you I know a lot of you have already given, so thank you so much for that. But if you haven't given and if you like what we do, if you love the voices and perspectives you hear on the show, help us out with a donation. Visit donate.npr.org slash listen to give. Then let us know on social media why you ponied up using the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. And thanks. 2017 has been a banner year for podcasts. We've seen tons of hits come out. S-Town and Missing Richard Simmons and Dirty John and a whole slew of other shows that aren't about men behaving badly. But I don't want you to take my word for it. My producer Ponzi Rutch and I headed to downtown D.C. to see what fun shows real people have been listening to this past year. Some people weren't so into it, though. Hey, excuse me. We're with NPR. Sorry. Ah, Sorry. It's true. Sorry. Nice one. Absolutely. Sorry. He's missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Typical DC brush off. I should have expected it. But other people were really happy to chat with us about their favorite shows. Um, I want to know if you guys listen to podcasts at all. Love them all the time. I love them. Yes. Happy to be interviewed. It's everything, man. It's the wave of the future. Really? I'm, I'm being totally sincere. What do you listen to? 10% Happier is a great podcast. Yeah. Uh, all the Ringer podcasts are great for sports. Yeah. Um, Joe Rogan's podcast is underrated. Really? Yeah, very eclectic. <laughs> um, Did you have one show this year that you loved? There's this guy, Chuck Klosterman. Yeah. He's like an ethics writer, I think, for the New York Times. Yeah. He does some like sports pop culture stuff with Bill Simmons. It's just, it's really great. Yeah. That's our new best friend, Tim Smith, from Tacoma Park, Maryland, giving us his favorite podcast of 2017. And I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to eavesdrop in on some of the great conversations happening in our earbuds today. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. And today, we're sharing a few of our favorite segments from past episodes this year. It's kind of like a little best of list. And we're going to hear from some of your top podcasts as well. It's our non-denominational holiday present to you. I hope it's the right size. I am listening to a lot of things from uh, Gimlet Media, uh, Reply All. Um, I really like Love and Radio. Um, uh, 99% Invisible is really great. Um, I really like uh, WNYC's um a podcast on uh, Trump's America. That was a really good one. Uh That would be Indivisible from WNYC, which tracked Trump's first 14 weeks in office. Do you have a favorite podcast of 2017? A new one? Yeah. Blanking on the name. Um, Give me a description. It's This American Life's contributor and... uh, S-Town. S-Town, yes. S-Town? S-Town's the answer, yeah. That was like your your top of 2017. (laughs) Yes, it is. I swear, you cannot throw a stone and not hit someone who loved S-Town. Not that we were throwing stones, but anyway. That was our new pal, Harper Wyam from Washington, D.C. We'll hear more from folks on the streets of D.C. about their podcast listening habits. 
But now we're going to check out one of my favorite shows of 2017. If you've ever ventured down the aisles of your local bookstore, you'll know that there are about a million self-help titles. Peace from Broken Pieces, Living Through the Meantime, and Get Over It. And those are just from one author. Shout out Ayanla Van Zant, please fix my life. But if you're like me, you don't know anyone who actually admits to reading any of them, except the hosts of the podcast by the book. By the Book is hosted by pals Jolenta Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer. Jolenta is a struggling comedian who can't quite get it together. Kristen is a working professional with a 401k plan. And both are delightful, in my estimation. Jolenta and Kristen, welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, Lauren. Hi. Thank you for having us. Oh, well, thank you for reading all the self-help books so I don't have to. (laughs) It's our pleasure. From where I sit, your project sounds like a terrible idea for an individual to do. But why did you guys want to embark on this particular challenge? That's definitely my fault. Um, (laughs) That's Jolenta's fault, everyone. I'm a mess by trade, I guess. I'm I'm a comedian. I have lots of part-time jobs. I've just always been a mess. And a few years ago, things were extra messy. I was miserable. And I was like, what would happen if I just lived by different self-help books? And then I wrote my friend Kristen into it because she's a responsible adult and like can kind of help keep me balanced. But Kristen, if you're a responsible adult who doesn't need self-help books, why did you say yes to this? Oh, I don't need these dumb books, but I love (laughs) Jolenta so much. And also, I mean, quite frankly, I don't like Jolenta going over the edge. I don't want her to join a cult. I don't want her to start living by the rules of crystals or consulting horoscopes before she goes to the grocery store. These things I'm are, impressionable. They, these things are potential risks with you. And and also I thought maybe some of it will be fun. Little did I know, none of it would be. It, you secretly love it. <laughs> I kind of love it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. What are the most popular themes that you guys have, have discovered in, in the self-help um, genre? Definitely visualization is a huge thing, which is something I never gave any thought to until reading these books. But I'm pretty sure every book we've read has touched on, like, visualize yourself here or there or this kind of life or with that money. Like, lots of what I would just call daydreaming about the life you want. (laughs) I would agree that that seems to be in every book. They want you to visualize the life you want. You should just drive. I'm going to do it. I'm going to manifest it. Here. See, I'm moving my hand. The slow car is moving into the slow lane. No, 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 you're laughing at me. I'm totally going to do it. I'm totally going to do it. Look, infinity, QR, whatever that car is, you're going to move to the right lane. I'm doing the Tai Chi move. It wants to do it. Oh my God, there it goes. There it goes. Oh. Ah, it's going. It's going. You did it. See a so sucker. <laughs> you guys said that visualization was uh, a point that kept coming up, and I liked it. You guys read The Secret, and The Secret, um, from your perspective, seemed to be all about visualizing all of the amazing things that can happen to you and then um, pairing that with like a, an actual vision board, like a physical thing. Um, when you're doing this, did you feel like, I cannot believe 
I'm I'm doing this right now. Like, no, like the, I feel like I'm doing an arts and crafts project. Totally. Was, did, totally. was it very much out of your comfort zones or no? I mean, for me, and I'm more gung-ho about this stuff, I still find it embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing to invite people over and have them see your vision board up on your door. It's, embar- it's embarrassing to, like, say what you care about and what you want, really. It's difficult and it's vulnerable and it's embarrassing. And, you know, I would hide my vision board when I had friends come over. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, but I but I do want to say something jumping off of what you just said, Jolenta, as far as being vulnerable and that being embarrassing. I think that one thing we do try to do in our show is not hide how we're vulnerable. And as much as I roll my eyes at a lot of these books, I do try my best. And I know Jolenta tries her best to be very authentic and to tell the truth. And mm-hmm. that includes showing our fights with our husbands. There's Just crying. Lots of crying. There's so, so much, much crying. crying. There, there are a lot of things we try to put out there because we know that self-help books are frequently mocked and that uh, they get made fun of. But as much as we all can see the faults in them, there is something really admirable about people trying to help themselves yeah. and putting putting their pain out there and putting the things out there that they want fixed. Even if it involves making a collage. <laughs> well, I liked making the collage, actually. <laughs> Well, Kristen, on that point, speaking of vulnerability, um, there was a point in your episode where where you guys are talking about the life-changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo. You basically, your goal in sort of doing all this and in tidying up and getting rid of things that didn't bring you joy, it was to integrate all of your things more with your husband's things because you had moved into his house and ultimately you felt maybe like you were not um, in a very shared space. Okay, honey, it's time for us to visualize the life that we want to have after the tidying. Don't I just want the same life with less stuff on the floor? No, that's not allowed. You have to have a bigger grand vision. Something that motivates the tidying in a bigger way. Okay. I've been thinking about it. And I think the life I would like is one where all of our stuff is more integrated into a shared marital household. Because I moved into your yeah, house. Yeah, that's right. That's then, right. So you and, fit your stuff sort of around my stuff. And yeah, no, I, I yeah, can yeah. see that. No, okay, so we have to take it to the next step now. Say, why? Why do you want that future? Yeah, honey, why do you want that future? But why? So that we can be more happily married. But why? So that we can be more happy. And that is the answer. She says when you get to the point where the answer is to be happy, then you are ready. I thought that was a really lovely, sincere moment. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I, I have to confess that I wasn't totally sure about putting that out there, but I think that opened the floodgates to me being more and more open as we went along with these things. And when Jolenta and I said earlier, there are tears. It's not just Jolenta crying in future episodes. There's a lot of me crying too. I just want to warn you. I feel if you like hate Jolenta crying, has cried. Then you'll hate our show. I feel like Jolenta has cried in every episode at some point. It's just like, like I just imagine you collapsing on the floor, like in a puddle, and then your husband, <laughs> your husband is like petting your head or something. He it's going to be up okay, and he's like, hey. right? Like everything's going to yeah. be fine. Like you're not a total disaster. You know, you can do it. Um, <laughs> it's it's very Our husbands sweet. have just been champs throughout all well, of this. Yeah, so I mean, it definitely uh, you have very understanding husbands who are willing to play along um, in this experiment. So, how has it impacted you guys? It's opened up a lot of conversations that we normally wouldn't have. 
uh, during tidying up, my husband talked about how he was afraid I was, like, going to become a hoarder because my grandma was one. And I was like, wow, I had no idea you worried about that. Also, I'm insulted. Uh, you know? So there are some fun, good conversations that happen and also lots of weird, annoying ones. I want to warn you that whenever you talk to me or to other people in the future about this project... You saying, just grow up, just live, like, you just got to live like a grown-up, you know, based on this thing that you have lived approximately zero minutes of your life. It's going to come off as really patronizing. Dude. It's coming off as patronizing to me right now. And if you go, and I, I'm with you all the time. So if you go into the outside world and start spouting off about how, you just got to free yourself, you know, like, just grow, like, we always have to grow up and stop living like rat people. They'll go, shut up. Let me live my life and stop proselytizing to me about something you've never done. Oh my God. Holy smoky. I've never heard Brad that intense before. I oh my know. God. I was wondering when you're reading these books, what are you thinking about the authors of these books? Are, are, you, are you considering them at all? Are you wondering, like, who are you and how did you come up with this system? Oh, absolutely. The authors are fascinating. The more we get into self-help books, the more I get into these authors because they, I mean, they're such extreme people. They've made a like weird niche category of self-help their life's work, whether it's tidying or visualizing the life you want or memorizing stuff. Telling people what French women eat. Like they've all become specialists in these weird niche areas and that makes them very interesting people, I find. If you were each, and, and maybe this is an impossibility, but if you were each to name your own self-help book, what would the title of your own self-help book be? Mm. Mine would be Crying Your Way to Greatness. <laughs> By Jolenta That's Jolenta. Yeah. <laughs> Crying Your Way to Greatness. Okay. Kristen, do you have a self-help title for your your personal self-help book that you'll be writing? Uh, What Would Nana Do? And by that, I mean my grandmother, who I reference in a few different episodes, Nana, who was famously a part of the Richfield Mother Singers, uh, a choral group in Minnesota. (laughs) The Mother Singers? Um, Nana taught me all sorts of things that I try to live my life by every single day, whether it's reusing tea bags a hundred times or... (laughs) Being economical, buying things secondhand, and the number one lesson she always taught me was, quoting Abe Lincoln, which I do sometimes in the show, most folks are just about as happy as they make up their minds to be. We should make up our minds to be happy. Oh, my. See, you're th- that, th- that is the problem, is that you're too well adjusted for all of this. But that's why I need her. <laughs> <laughs> Jolinda Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer are the hosts of By the Book from Panoply. To find out more about their show, check out biglisten.org. Now, as I mentioned before, 2017 was a big year. Big, 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 tremendous year for podcasts. But not everyone is into them. I wanted to know if you guys um, listen to podcasts. To what? Podcasts. No. No. We are from Germany. We are curious. Exactly. 
All right. I mean, they have podcasts in Germany, but whatever. Anyway, we're going to take a little break now. But when we come back, we're going to chat with some folks digging into the untold stories of the Civil War. A lot of really great stories get covered up by the cleaned up narrative. And it was really when Chenger and I started looking underneath kind of like the, the battlefield stories, the generals, the list of dates and bull run. All of that, that's one narrative. But first, we're going to turn our attention to contemporary times with writer Alex Kotlowitz. His show, Written Inside, features stories penned by men in a maximum security prison. I felt like if I could just get them to write about something to do with their prison cell, that it would give them a sense of humanity. And also, just sort of speak to how one gets by living in prison. That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hi, this is Taryn from Richmond, Virginia, and I just want to shout out the Black Joy mixtape by Amber Phillips and Jasmine Walker. It's dope because they are just super cozy and funny and thoughtful about politics and news and all types of other um, things. Over 50% of guns are owned by 20, 21% of the population. And gun control, like when we're talking about gun reform, you know, people aren't necessarily talking about what happens with all these people with guns, specifically these white extremists who right. exist in this country who are um, just being um, violent, like off the basis or in, and or fear of melanated people in this country. Right. There's no way that we Check it out. And yeah, have a good one. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I need a favor. I need you to call this number, 202-885-POD1, and tell me what you'll be putting your ears on in 2018. The pod line is actually the coolest, and we need you to be a part of it. That's that. If you've seen movies like Shawshank Redemption or Dead Man Walking, you might think you have an idea about prison life in America. But if you've never been incarcerated, it's hard to truly grasp what happens in prison on the day-to-day. Author and journalist Alex Kotlowitz's show, Written Inside, offers a glimpse into prison life that rarely makes it to the big screen. The cellmate challenges, the social isolation, the lack of opportunity for a better life. Written Inside features stories crafted by incarcerated men with the help of Kotlowitz and then brought to life by voice actors. But the stories aren't about the inmates' innocence or the prison system writ large. They're about prison cells. And for my money, it's one of the more affecting shows of 2017. Alex Kotlowitz, welcome to The Big Listen. Hi, thanks for having me. So can you explain, uh, just explain sort of the the framework for this podcast and and how it came to be? Sure. I mean, in some ways, it was kind of an accidental project. I was invited about a year ago to um, speak to a a class at Stateville Correctional Center uh, outside Chicago, about 45 minutes outside Chicago. It's a maximum security prison. And there was a philosophy professor from Northwestern, Jennifer Lackey, who was teaching a class there. And she invited me to come in to speak about my... uh, first book, There Are No Children Here, and she had actually bought copies for the 15 
inmates. Um, some of the guys knew actually some of the characters in the book because they were from the neighborhood, same neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. But while I was there, I did this exercise. Uh, but part of what I wanted to talk to them about was storytelling. And so I did this exercise there where I had them write about their prison cells. And, you know, just to, uh, they had 10 or 15 minutes. But I was so taken with what they wrote that you know, about a week later, I called Jennifer and I said, you know, if these guys were up for it, I'd be willing to work with them on trying to really create something um, that maybe would find an audience outside the prison. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the next eight months working with these inmates um, in this class from draft to draft to draft. Mm -hmm. They would, some of the guys we're kind of saying, you know, if we're going to write about something, I really want to write about my case. I want to write about the conditions in the prison. And and I really wanted to just give them the tools to write about story. And I felt like if I could just get them to write about something to do with their prison cell, that it would give them a sense of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just sort of speak to how one gets by living in prison. Um, I mean, I should say all these guys were, you know— they all were serving time for violent crimes. Many of them had been there for at least a couple of decades, one as long as 35 years. Right. So they'd been there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine, though, keeping the focus narrow um, was helpful because, like you said, that they were there was a tendency to sort of want to write about, you know, broader things, my case or, you know, conditions in the prison. You could right. go on forever. But right. talking, you know, keeping it narrow to to what is this place – what does this place look like where you are living? Right. And moreover, you know, the, the other thing I had to sort of fight against is that they were – many of the essays, early essays were kind of polemical and right. I really wanted them to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they would tell a story and then I had to sort of help them figure out why they were telling that story. Mm-hmm. What was it about? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's one of the stories about a – um, one of the guys who talks about having spending um, a number of months trying to fight all these roaches in his <laughs> cell, and it's a it's a wonderful story. But I kept on saying to him, "So why why are you writing about this? What importance does this have to you?" And it turns out that which he ends up writing about in his essay that you know years ago he had met a guy in prison who was just didn't take care of himself. You know, just this hygiene was terrible, and he just vowed that he would never become that person. He smelled of urine and sour milk. But what blew my mind was that in his hair and beard, roaches crawled around. I pointed it out to him, thinking maybe he wasn't aware of them. Hey, Fester, man, get those roaches out of your hair, I hollered. And he responded, oh, they ain't hurting nothing. We got an understanding and we cool. I was about 21 at the time. Still early in my bit, Fester was in his 40s and had been locked up for over 20 years. In that moment, I realized that Fester had totally given up on himself. It was also in that moment that I went to war with everything that Fester represents. The loss of vigilance against the elements of prison that suddenly ask you to surrender your dignity. And so when you first started reading what they were writing, what were your sort of immediate thoughts? You know, you're writing you, – like this is what you do for a living. Right. Well, first of all, i got to say just my, my immediate thought was some of, the, some of the things they wrote about just kind of knocked me off balance, you mm-hmm. know, really surprised me. There's this wonderful story about one of the guys who uh, – 
very much wanted to learn how to play the piano. Yeah. Um, he was he was head of his church choir, and he had access to a piano one hour a week on Sundays. And so he ends up building himself a cardboard piano that he spent hours, I mean hours upon hours, practicing on in his prison cell. Yeah. And on that cardboard piano, actually teaches himself how to play. I positioned my practice space at the end of my bunk bed. I was fortunate to have the bottom bunk because I could sit on my small property box like a piano bench. I folded my mattress on itself and then placed the piano on the steel bed frame. For hours at a time, I would practice finger positions and chords. Sometimes I would hum the sound of the keys as I tapped on the cardboard. I had one silly ask, only partly joking, do you need me to call a psych doctor for you? Every time I got a new cellmate, I would warn him, don't be alarmed, I'd say. I have a cardboard piano that I play. I had one silly ask me to teach him. First, I showed him that music is alive and always moving. But when we sat down on our bunk beds to learn the mechanics, he lacked the focus and imagination to learn on the cardboard piano. He lasted only a couple of weeks. I, on the other hand, practiced for hours on end, to the point where I developed calluses on my fingers. The, there were some themes that that popped up for me that, you know, I don't necessarily think about when I think of prison, and one was friendship. Right. Well, there actually, it comes up actually in a number of the stories. Yeah, yeah there were right. two. There it, was the, it, the, the, recluse, the recluse, right. and then the guy who, um, who never wanted to make friends in prison but ended up making a friend in prison and was surprised about that. Making friends is very dangerous. You don't know who you can trust. Um, they Some of the guys in, in one of the essays, they talk about how they've had cellmates who have actually stolen addresses and have written family yeah, and friends. Yeah, that was crazy. And, right. I know it was crazy. I know. And there is this one, you know, very touching essay about a guy who, you know, has been there for a long time. He's never had – he didn't have – it sounds like he didn't have really have – when he was out in the streets – for different reasons, really couldn't trust anybody mm -hmm. and so didn't have any friends there. And of course, when he went to prison, kind of even pulled more inward. And then at some moment, he ends up with this cellmate who happens to be Demetrius, the right. guy who plays the uh, right. cardboard piano, and they end up becoming best friends. It's kind of a, it's actually a really, for me, a really poignant piece because he talks about, and I had to really push him on this, but mm -hmm. they, he talks about the friendship and why it was so important to him. And then suddenly, just like that, Demetrius is transferred, and he's transferred to another prison, and they will probably never be able to have any communication. We both knew transfer day was on Wednesdays. So every day from that point on, we ate more meals together, laughed even more, which I didn't think was possible, and just appreciated the moments. It was a Monday morning when the officer came to the cell and told Demetrius to pack his property. The next morning, around 3.30 a.m., an officer came to get him. Let's go, Cunningham. I jumped out of bed. We exchanged addresses for our family since we wouldn't be able to write each other directly. We gave each other an embrace, and I gave him some shorts to put under his jumpsuit. Thanks, Michael. Well, goodbye. And he was gone. 
So in that line, I, I wonder what you think uh, producing these pieces did for for the the authors. Well, I think for them, it gave them some affirmation that they had something important to say. But I think more than that, it you know I said this early on, but and I, it sounds a little facile, but but it, it gave them some sense of humanity. Mm-hmm. These are guys, again, all in for violent crimes, many of them in for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know moment comes to define you and you spend, I know this from talking to other people who have served time for violent crimes, that you spend much of your time trying to, to run from that, trying right. to find other things that'll help define you. And so here they write about something that has nothing to do with that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there was something incredibly affirming about that for the for the inmates. What, what do you think, um, or what would you like people to get out of Written Inside when they're listening to it? I think, if nothing else, just to get people to think about what it means to send people away to prison for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what when is enough enough you know right. um so in a, a you know much more simple way it's really this kind of portal into prison life and as a country that sends so many people away to prison i think we have an obligation to try to understand what that means Alex Kotlowitz is the creator of Written Inside from our pals at WBEZ in Chicago. To get more info about the show, hit up our website, biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another little break, but when we come back, we'll catch up with the creators of the show Uncivil, which features Civil War stories you probably didn't learn in school. A lot of political battles, voting, things that have to do with uh, mass incarceration, things that have to do with violence and policing, um, and you know, just basic questions about what is the real nature of the United States. All those things, at the center of those are these debates, and the Civil War helps you to really understand those things with a lot more depth. That's coming up next. Stick around. This is NPR. Hey, pals. I remember when my grandma was alive, she loved her stories, and that meant her soap operas. She was a widow, and the soaps made her feel connected to the outside world, also romance. Now, I'm guessing you don't watch soap operas, but you do love your stories. The shows you listen to, like The Big Listen, connect you to your neighbors and the broader world. So keep your love of stories alive. Visit donate.npr.org listen to give. If you've already donated, thanks. If you haven't, do it for my grandma or your grandma. And then shout out why you gave on social media using the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. And thanks. Hi, I'm Rachel and I live in Arlington. So lately I've been really into this podcast called The Axis of Ego. It's kind of about everything. Um, And that's why I like it so much because the topics vary so drastically from baseball to online dating. Not that long ago, I, like many people, considered using dating websites to be the equivalent of wearing a big flashing sign that says, I can't function in normal society. Today, however, I realize that the fact that I can't function in normal society is merely a coincidence. The reality is that the easiest and simplest way to meet people is through these devices to which we're tethered 24 hours a day. Uh, but they're all really relatable and light and just easy to listen to. And also the host, Tom, has really great stories and funny outlooks. 
and just interesting facts. So yeah, give it a listen. Hey pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you're like our friend Rachel from one of the many Arlingtons of America, who knows which one, and you too love a quirky little indie podcast, give us a scoop, call the pod line and leave a message. The number is 202-885-POD1. Cool. Now, I know we're heading into a new year, but first, if you'll indulge me, let's travel back in time a bit, back to the 1860s. If you grew up in the U.S., you surely learned about the American Civil War. But did you know that there were a number of non-traditional soldiers fighting for the Union Army? Or that some people are still fighting for their ancestors' 40 acres and a mule to this day? Or that Harriet Tubman, the Moses of her people, served as a spy for the Union Army and was responsible for freeing more than 700 enslaved people in one single raid? She grew up on a slave plantation, so she knew what it was like to maybe walk by a master and hear information, then tell another slave that information. She had a lot of experience being a spy and being under a lot of pressure by the time she met Montgomery. My name is Jade Lee, and I'm the great-great-great-grandniece of Harriet Tubman. Uncivil is a show that explores the untold stories of the Civil War, And those stories have deep resonance today since we're still wrestling with the legacy of division and racial injustice in America. And I think it's one of the best new offerings of 2017. Jack Hitt and Chenjirai Kumanyika are the hosts of Uncivil. Welcome to The Big Listen, guys. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I feel like... Your timing seems to be impeccable with this podcast, you know, because we are we are talking about the Civil War. We're talking about Civil War monuments. And I wonder sort of why was the Civil War something I still need to be thinking about in 2017? Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it's you know, when we started this show, which was really like a year ago, probably, yeah. yep. there was a sense of like, OK, we need to really make sure we demonstrate the relevance of this in 2017. Mm-hmm. That's no longer the, the challenge, <laughs> I think. Um, but... I wasn't really thinking about the Civil War and was kind of not really interested in it. It just sounded to me for a long time, large part of my life, like homework or some social Mm -hmm. studies class type thing. But I eventually came to feel that it was really relevant to the current political moment. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of political battles that we have, for example, things like voting, things that have to do with uh, mass incarceration, things that have to do with violence and policing um, and you know, just basic questions about what is the real nature of the United States. Right. All those things at the center of those are these debates and the Civil War helps you to really understand those things with a lot more depth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I came to discover all of those issues too, but coming from a very different place, which is that I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. and the Civil War is everywhere there. It's an inescapable fact of life in Charleston. And one that I diligently avoided most of my childhood. I just parked it off to the side, along with like learning about the combustion engine and the Atlanta Braves. And I just thought like, you know, these are three subjects I'm just going to like not deal with now and move on to something else in my life. So so Jack, are you saying when you when you were parking it off to the side at that point, it it wasn't the politics of it as the main thing. It just also just wasn't interesting. I think I'm flattering myself maybe a little too much here. But like, I think even as a kid, I had a pretty good detector mm. um, and when I saw those nice clean statues and this this nice very neat uh, story being told everywhere I just felt like 
I'm not sure this is true or this is really, really boring. I am now only now, many years later, coming to realize, okay, I, I got to start looking at this thing. Right, right. Chandra, where are you from originally? Were you born in the South or are you a Northern guy? I'm more of a Northern guy. You know, I was born in, in New York uh, City and then I lived in upstate New York for a long time and just different yeah. places, mostly on the East Coast. So I didn't really understand the South until I started working at Clemson University mm-hmm. uh, about, about four years ago. Wow, that's quite a deep dive there. <laughs> it's a deep dive, especially since it, that campus is, it was formerly the plantation of John C. Calhoun. That's right. So Lauren, he's a little bit Union, I'm a little bit Confederate, and that's our show. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please, no, that's definitely not the show. <laughs> that is not the show. Right, right. That is not well, the show. I feel like we should point out, you know, Chendrai, you're black, Jack, you're white. And I feel like the show could have easily been some very well-meaning, like, kumbaya, we're all friends now. Like, let's hash out our differences, but nicely. Like, how do you, how are you guys navigating your own, your your own racial differences, your own personal histories through the, the stories that you're telling? Or are you? Well, I think one of the first things that Chendrai ever said to me is like, I don't do racial conversations. <laughs> I don't do healing. I'm not I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to sit down and talk to you as a dialogue. Right. I mean we're both reporters. Yeah. And on that score, we've been having a blast. Yeah. I mean one thing that brought us together too was just like when we started sharing these stories, we were like, yo, these are some incredible stories. Right. You just and and a lot of really great stories get covered up by the cleaned up narrative. And it was really when Chenger and I started looking underneath kind of like the the battlefield stories, the generals, the list of dates and bull run, all of that, that's one narrative. Right. But of course, the war was happening all over the country, everywhere else, all the time by every group. And it's right. those stories that we thought, wow, how didn't I, why didn't I know this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why didn't I know that there were a number of women who fought in the Civil War passing as men? What's this? My, this is my breast binder. Okay. I just used materials that would have been available to a mid-19th century person. So, mm-hmm. you know, the straps are the same kind of cotton strapping that what we used to tie our signal flags to the poles. And these, this is so much more comfortable. A sports yeah. bra is just, it's like thick and heavy and compresses and kind of gives you like this mono-boob effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to be, you know, flat and manly. <laughs> That's Audrey. Her battlefield partner, Tracy, says the two of them are damn good at what they do. At a reenactment this past summer, they said... Somebody that knew us... He was at this event. We were there Friday, Saturday. Well, come Sunday, this fellow says to some of the other guys in the unit, um, so when are these women supposed to show up? And we'd been there all along. Hi, guys. <laughs> Audrey and Tracy can laugh about it, but when they get caught, they catch hell from the male reenactors. They've been threatened, banned from reenactments for being inauthentic, which they say is <laughs> Audrey and Tracy say they're just as accurate as any of the men. That's the other rumor you hear on the battlefield. Women did fight in the Civil War, and they've been fighting ever since to prove it. Some of the fun and challenge of the show is, in a story, for example, it has to do with you know women soldiers and issues of gender, to think about how are those questions that we're dealing with now, how did they start? Or what did they look like at that time? And so really break, you know, kind of writing that into our stories 
and wrestling with that has been some of the some of the really challenging and interesting stuff about making this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, you know, every generation likes to flatter itself. And I think especially right now, a lot of people think that like all the issues of like gender identity, of of gayness and straightness, all of these questions are like brand new to us. And uh, they're not. Right, right. <laughs> you know, one thing I wonder is like, what do you think America's sort of enduring fascination is with the Civil War or white America's fascination, which seems odd to me? Well, one, one reason is, is because I think we all know in our bones that it's not finished. The mm-hmm. triumphant declarations of like, you know, ending slavery and abolitionism, that's all fine. But of course, we paid for that by creating a racist system that then would last for another hundred years. Jim Crow didn't happen in the South. It happened in the North. I mean, that's really one of the key unfinished aspects of the war mm-hmm. and is that that conversation's really never been opened up or 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 had in any way that's honest. You know, one thing that Jack raises interesting is... I'm not sure if the South has an identity without the Civil War. Mm. And I think that that's one reason why there's you see this tremendous nostalgia is because it's deeply wrapped up with Southern identity. And just because we moved on historically to whatever extent we've moved on, the identity of the South is still very much wrapped up in that. It's something I learned living there. I, one thing that happened for me when I lived in South Carolina was I came to a new understanding of the whole country mm-hmm. because I realized that these issues that we say this is just the south like the south has these issues with slavery and stuff like that it wasn't just in the south Mm -hmm. at all and so the south north breakdown doesn't really work actually one of the things when you really dig underneath the the sort of statue stories is you find out how complicated the real demographics were in the south and in the north you know there was a secession movement in new york city led by the mayor right because there was so much pro-confederate sentiment up here Right. Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of unionists uh, down south. And of course, so when you say what would have been like if the south won? Well, that's an interesting question, because, of course, the south did win. Black southerners won. Pro-union southerners won. So what south are you referring to? Mm -hmm. I have a question. It's something that I've always wondered about. Why people go out and redo wars? Um, like, do other countries reenact their own civil wars? Like, is this just an American thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I went on a journey of discovery in reference to that. I mean, it was like I was just like, yo, it's one thing to have an effect, a sort of affection for history and for the Confederate side of the history. It's another thing to have that affection be so strong that you want to dress up and go do that repeatedly. But one thing I did come to understand is that a lot of these people are consider themselves a kind of historian. Right. And I mean, I think about the way I learned history. I don't know how you learned it, but it wasn't that. It wasn't really super engaging. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, I mean, so to say like, oh, a college history professor, that's fine. That's nothing to be laughed at. But a person who wants to actually act it out, that's ridiculous. It's like, well, you know. But I will say, I mean, there's something about the Civil War reenactments that's particularly peculiar to to this country. Like, Chindrai called me at one point uh, early on and said, like, okay, here's the quiz. When was the first Civil War reenactment? When, when do you think it was, Lauren? I would think it would be in 1951. Chindrai, what's the answer? I think it was 1861. Oh, 1861. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It was still happening? <laughs> Literally months after it happened. We were already like, oh, this God. is really interesting. There were reenactments as the war was happening and right. other battles were being reenacted in other places. That is bananas. So I think that on one level, it's that it, it is traumatic. But I think on another level, people are trying to make sense of it. I feel like um, considering that you guys are both 
deeply immersed in, in Civil War history right now. I wonder what each of you think of all of this action around Confederate monuments at this precise moment in history. What are you thinking about? Well, I can tell you one thing I'm thinking about. I mean, one of the great enduring fictions of the war is the Lost Cause narrative, that mm-hmm. these were heroic generals who performed honorably in battle and just lacked enough of the material resources to pull mm-hmm. off the victory, and that it was never about slavery. It was always about states' rights and, and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It takes about five minutes of library research to find out that none of that is true. <laughs> right, right. But I do think like this is this war- rare opportunity in, a, in American culture where we have a, a, a chance to sort of set that narrative aside and try to look at some some of the real history that happened. Right, right. Especially because a lot of them were put up in like, the, you know, the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and, you know. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think that something about the permanency and weight and size yeah. and placement of a statue makes people feel like you're doing something wrong by removing it, even if the narrative that the statue is promoting is wholly false. Right. I mean, everybody was really excited uh to talk about taking down or, you know, um, Robert E. Lee statue. But, you know, recently the, some of the black student activists went and raised questions about the Thomas Jefferson statue. Sure. You know, like where, where are the points of convergence between his legacy and, and Robert E. Lee's legacy? Sure. You want to say there's none, you know, and that was a much different kind of conversation there because suddenly a lot of people who had been condemning Robert E. Lee suddenly found themselves wanting to defend Jefferson. You know, I'll tell you, I saw a picture of, a, of an empty pedestal in one of these towns in the paper. And I have to say, it's the most arresting image I've seen. I mean, yeah. to look at a statue is one thing, but to see the, the horse and the dude gone, and it's just this flat, big piece of granite, it does, <laughs> it does totally force you to ask this question, well, who does belong there? Jack Hitt and Chenjirai Kumunika are the hosts of Uncivil from Gimlet Media. To find out more about their show, check out biglisten.org. In exploring our favorite podcast of the year, we had to save room for the weird and the wacky. So now it's time for a little featurette we call... Wait, what? Have you ever happened upon a podcast and thought to yourself, wait, what? This is a podcast? How simultaneously random and delightful. Well, you're not alone. We have two. We wanted to showcase some of the more offbeat shows of the podcast universe. Our guide for Wait What will be our producer, Ponzi Rutch. Hey, Ponzi. Hey, Lauren. All right, so what do you got for me this week? So I think the best clue to start off this week is the opening or the theme music from this podcast. Okay. You've tuned in to the Community Cats podcast. <laughs> Ready? Nope. Let's go. I'm already I'm already feeling cat allergies from that <laughs> theme song. I'm already I'm already itchy. So, Lauren, do you know what community cats are? No. Are they different than other types of cats? Yes. Yes is the short answer. What is so a community cat? Community cats are pretty much any cat that's outside. <laughs> We call those feral where I come from. <laughs> First of all, I should introduce Stacy LeBaron. My preferred title is uh, head cat of the Community Cats podcast. <laughs> no, no, she's not. She does not call herself a cat. Oh, yes, she does. <laughs> Why is it a podcast and not a podcats? <laughs> well, and it could have been pod, you know, P-A-W, too. Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> 
I'll keep these daily podcasts brief so you can listen to them while commuting to work or you have a few minutes to sit down or even while you're out feeding a colony of feral cats, say, or waiting to catch that hard to catch feral cat. <laughs> um, so Stacy has been working with community cats in Massachusetts for about 23 years. They do this thing. It's called TNR, trap, neuter, release. They trap the cat, they neuter or spay the cat, and then they release it back into the wild so that it doesn't create more community cats. And <laughs> there's this method where you you like clip a cat ear so you know that that one has been fixed. And then you know, I need to catch the one that doesn't have this marking on its ear. So People like Stacy will sit around and wait for that one cat that has the unmarked ear to walk into the trap, and it gets really frustrating. Oh, my God. You spend a ton of time sitting in your car, you know, waiting for the cat to go in the bloody trap. Um, and I just sort of envisioned them sitting there listening to a podcast. So I should say, when she says bloody, she doesn't mean bloody, like, violent. She means bloody, it's really frustrating, as in, oh, like, a British way of saying bloody. Right, the, right. the traps are harmless. It is a very particular way to spend one's time. Indeed. I will grant you that. So, yeah. But that's not the only reason why this work is tiring. A lot of this business is very alone. I mean, everybody feels like they're the only ones doing this. Am I the only one who cares about these cats? I hear that a lot. It's super selfless, too, it seems like, because, you know, the cats aren't going to thank you. Hey, thanks for taking me off the streets. And I guess, yeah, the show seems like like a good support for that. And they're finding friends amongst the other podcast listeners and the other people who are doing volunteer work just like they are. It would be a way that I could learn about cats without actually having to touch any of them. Yeah, yeah. Tune into the Community Cats podcast. It'll be a total meow fest. No. <laughs> no I'll listen to it tomorrow meowning. <laughs> no, that, that one didn't work. <laughs> okay. Meow is a hard thing to work into a sentence. <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, what? Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will slide into your feed every week automatically. Also, check out our ridiculously fun newsletter, if I do say so myself. You can subscribe at biglisten.org. And... Definitely check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H E A R Big Listen. We are almost as hilarious as that video of the president drinking water like a baby. Just trust me. Google it. <laughs> Should you want to send us a belated holiday e card, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. Snail mail cards accepted too. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Jacob Fenston, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was busy writing out my New Year's resolutions, which I will no doubt not uphold. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now here's one more set of Real People podcast recommendations for the road, courtesy of David Sanchez of Hyattsville, Maryland. Uh, I'm currently listening listening to uh, Big Picture Science from okay. the SETI Institute. Oh. I'm a loyal fan of their podcast, and I always wait for every Monday to come. I usually listen as well to BBC Click mm -hmm. uh, to, see, to take a perspective outside my, my DC bubble. Hopefully some podcasts have taken you out of your own bubble this year as well. Thanks for hanging out, friends. From all of us here at The Big Listen, we wish you a very happy and healthy holiday season. Till 2018, keep listening, America. This is NPR.